Testing, one, two, there we go. If you ever get a chance to meet David Yeboah, he is just one of the most amazing people. Uh, he was actually supposed to be here today, but um, turns out there's this 14-day uh, quarantine thing with, um, with COVID, and that is a problem. So um, he's not able to be with us, but hopefully sometime soon he's going to be able to be able to kind of give us some live perspective on this. But um, Dave is someone who is a mobilizer, who reaches mobilizers, who end up reaching people to be disciples of Jesus. And it's pretty exciting. And so the fact that we get to be a part of that in even a small, uh, tangible way is, is, is pretty beautiful. So uh, I encourage you to be thinking about it, praying about what part you could be able to play in us helping to take teachers who are barely making it. Some of them are actually discouraged and starting to contemplate coming off the field in order to actually move this kind of thing forward and invite others to be a part of it as well. So pretty exciting time, uh, pretty beautiful thing that God's doing in Ghana. Um, so, well, uh, today, um, am I ringing a little? I feel like I'm ringing. Am I, I'm ringing. Is it, maybe it's the cold. It's coming through on the mic, you know. Anybody else have a cold? Is it just like, is it me, just me? All three of us, good. Well, today we're continuing uh, a series that we kicked off last week where we've been spending this year talking about the idea that, that we're, we're people who are called with a particular calling from the Lord. And, uh, and right now, over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're focusing on how that calling plays itself out in the context of particular roles that we have, particular roles that we have usually as it relates to family and those closest to us. We're going to get to work and, and kind of vocational context later as we get into the new year. But right now, we're just talking about a few very particular ones. Last week, we talked about single. Being a single man and woman, how does the call of God work itself out through your singleness? Um, and we're going to be talking about marriage. How does your calling work itself out into through your calling of being married, of being a spouse? Uh, we're going to talk about what it means to be a child. We're all kids of parents, whether they're still alive or not. And and this and tonight, tonight, I'm maybe on a little bit of meds, so it's going to be a really good morning. <laughs> this morning, um, we are going to focus on what it means to be focused on the role as parents, parents of the children that God uh, has given us, the children that God has given us live currently, or the ones uh, that he will give us in time. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm to kick off just by, by telling you just a little story, just wanted to bring the humanity reality to it. Uh, my daughter, Haley, I warned her she's here, and there's stories about my kids, and they're just going to be awesome today. But uh, Haley was about three years old, and my parents were coming to visit, actually, for the holidays. And we had had over dinner, uh, for dessert, we had chocolate cake. Now, Haley did not want to eat her dinner. And because we're, we were pretty exceptional parents, we were like, no dinner, no dessert, right? You know, how yeah, that works. So didn't want to eat, you know, the peas or whatever it was that were not interesting to her. And so she said, okay, so off she goes. She comes down and um, I love it when it goes off in these moments. It's like dramatic. Uh, and so we're sitting in the living room about, you know, 15 minutes later after clearing off the, the table and kind of putting everything in the kitchen. And uh, Haley comes out into the living room and uh, she's got this little uh, brown mark right here. And, uh, and I look at Haley and I said, Haley, she's three, remember? And I said, Haley, um, did you eat some chocolate cake in the kitchen? And she looks at me and Haley to this day cannot lie at all. And she looks at me and goes, no. I was like, well, what's that on your, like on your lip right there? She slowly extends her tongue up and licks the little brown mark off and you see her eyes go up and she goes, it's dirt. 
Now, that's probably a teachable moment there, but I was so proud of her for thinking so well on her feet in that moment. I couldn't hold back the, like, the laughter, and I was like, I was like, okay, let's not eat any more chocolate cake. And she's like, okay, okay, you know, um, the you know, telling on herself. And again, this is one of those stories that probably tells you a little bit about the fact that like every given moment as a parent is always a learning, right? You may have been like, wow, Matt, you kind of missed that moment, or you may be like, Wow, um, Haley really thinks fast on her feet, which she still does uh, to this day. But, um, but I want to—I say that, give that story to, to kind of illustrate the fact that uh, talking about parenting is like um, juggling balls of nitroglycerin in our culture, right? Like there is no doubt that there's something about parenting, and particularly child-parent relationships. That, that when you start dabbling in there, start calling people to live out in certain ways, or particularly according to how the scripture invites us to live, that it's like hands off. I was in our culture, there's two things we don't talk about. I don't, we don't talk to you about your kids, and I don't talk to you about your money, and you, don't do, you need to do the same for me, and we're just gonna agree to that end. So, we're gonna kind of step into it nonetheless, because, well, the scriptures do, and with, you know, kind of no trepidation. And secondly, just full disclosure, like, we made so many mistakes as parents. Like Becky and I have uh, have many many faults, and we kind of got to share those with our children. We have video footage to prove it too, because that's the best thing as a parent. You don't realize that when you're filming your parenting, because you think you're doing a good job, when you watch it later, you're like, "Oh wow, that was not awesome." And yet there it is. And so I'm not claiming to be an expert. I'm actually wanting to invite you into that place where since parenting can be a little bit of a challenging thing, it can be self-protective to kind of be open to what God may have for you to think about in your parenting this morning. The main purpose of parenting is to make children wise and to show them the gospel. To make children wise and to show them the gospel. That's the purpose of parenting. To teach them what's good and what is not good, what is right and what is wrong, what is wise and what is unwise, and to do so within the framework of the gospel. That's the role that you have as parents. That's the role that your parents had for you, and, and that's what we're going to be inviting ourselves into this morning. And so we're going we're gonna to jump into Proverbs because, you know, it is the book of wisdom. And uh, we're going to read a series of verses out of Proverbs, kind of back to back to back. And then we're going to step into some thoughts on, on that in three few spheres. So hear the word of the Lord from the book of Proverbs this morning. Proverbs 3, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Proverbs 13, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs 19, discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart to putting him to death, which is the teenager verse, by the way. This <laughs> is such a great, it's such a great verse. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Doesn't, wouldn't that be great if that was the sermon today? Anyway, um, Proverbs 22, uh, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Further in Proverbs 22, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs 23, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, you, he will not die. 
If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from death. Proverbs 29, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 29, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. And lastly, from the woman who fears the Lord, her children rise up and call her blessed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, all the Proverbs are instructions uh, to live for, to the son, right? From, from a father to the son to live wisely. And so, so it goes without saying that if you're kind of thinking about what should be taught to children, we look at the book of Proverbs and it's all about what you should be instructing your children to in order to live wisely. But today we're going to focus on the way in which we are to parent and teach our children wisdom uh, in, in a particular way. So we're going to look at it under three headings. First, uh, that we parent with discipline. You couldn't miss that from the passage I just read. Secondly, we parent by grace. And third, we parent in humility. We parent in humility. So first, we parent with discipline. Discipline is essential. There's no way to read the passages we just heard without coming to that conclusion that the discipline must happen. Now, I just want to want to reframe this just briefly as I'm about to read these fundamental principles around discipline that we just heard. I'm going to rephrase some of them and kind of put the fundamental principles around that, that discipline and actually the, the Latin word for discipline comes from disciple, right? It's the one who learns, who is, who is trained up. Okay, we're going to talk about it a little bit later in Ephesians uh, chapter 6, but but, but think of discipline both as correction, we'll talk about that in a minute, and training, right? Correction and training. Discipline is a natural part of child-rearing relationship. This discipline is motivated, as the Proverbs just told us, not by anger, not by hatred, but is motivated by love for the child. The purpose of correction is, is to bring children into submission under their parents because this discipline produces a reverence for your parents, for the parents, so that then children can begin to revere the Lord. So correction is for the profit, the good of every child. It's not supposed to be pleasurable for the one receiving it, which it never is, nor necessarily for the one who's giving it, which it rarely is. Discipline, according to the Proverbs, gets results. And a failure to discipline a child is, is equivalent to, to hatred, it says in the Proverbs, to, to, not, to a lack of love for a son or for a daughter. And to be effective, of course, loving discipline must be administered promptly, not rashly, but, but in timely and corresponding manner to what the disobedience was which means, you know, carpe diem, seize the day. We are to instruct and correct our children while we still have influence over them because one day you won't and we won't. And so parents must do their part to properly train their child, which means it doesn't happen by accident. The Proverbs is a clear invitation for parents into the process. It cannot be outsourced. Children 
I know some shocking concepts from the from Proverbs. Children will misbehave. They will not always be the perfect little angel or cowboy or whatever that you want them to be or that you assume they are to be. But proper discipline imparts wisdom to children. They learn from their mistakes so that they don't repeat them again. And if they repeat them, then they get to have consistency for timely discipline so that they learn for their lessons. Discipline's purpose is a vision for a long time trajectory. It's the long view of parenting. While it's not pleasant in the moment, it has this greater goal in mind. Which is why in Ephesians chapter six, the apostle Paul clarifies in one simple sentence, the reality of what parents are invited to do. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but rather bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So what should parents give their children? Discipline and instruction. You heard the negative command, right? Fathers, mothers, do not provoke your children. Don't provoke them to anger. Instead, there's two positive commands. Instead, discipline and instruct them. Discipline, hold their feet to the fire, hold them accountable. It's to correct, it's to, it's to punish with purpose, right? And to instruct, and these are linked together, to, to counsel, to train with care. And he says to, to, to raise up, to train up a child. So how do we, how do we raise up and how, how do we not provoke our children? We provoke our children either by, either by over-discipline where we put all the emphasis on correction and strict adherence, right? You are not following the letter of the law, but no emphasis on instruction, on, on training, on explanation, on, on invitation in. Or we put all the emphasis on instruction, only talking about, you know, always only talking, only reasoning with a child, but never truly correcting, never holding accountable or, or disciplining. It's, it's the question, listen, Tommy, how, how, does, how do you feel about hitting the wall and making a hole in it with mommy's lamp? That's missing something. So we provoke our children either by too much discipline without instruction or too much instruction without discipline. The Apostle Paul and God invites us to both. And the reason is, is clarified in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15, right? Folly, it says, is bound up in the heart of a child. Folly, they're little fools and bigger fools and sometimes big, big fools. It's bound up in their hearts. It's natural for a child to be unwise. That's the natural state, which means they have to be taught. They have to be trained. We must intervene. It is essential. That's what they call it. That's why he moves on to say that there's the rod of discipline to, to coach, to instruct, to discipline. The rod means, it means, at least it means this, it means authority. One of the foundational hearts, the foundational um, heart issues in the life of every child is authority. There's not a child who's not going my way. 
Every child finds himself there. Therefore, teaching and modeling the protective beauty of authority is one of the foundational proofs and good parenting. Now, not every place in Scripture does it talk about the rod as, as a particular means of automatic corporal punishment. It doesn't. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't not ever use it in that way. So the, the rod is used in many of these passages in particular. It can, it can be taken in various forms. It can be literal spanking, as it's been known, some other form of corrective discipline towards your children. But let me say this. Pain is a powerful training tool. Pain is a powerful training tool. And if it was 1955, I'd be saying that, but everyone would be like, yeah, this is simple. That's not, not the case as much anymore. And so I want to be connected to the times of where we are, that there's different rebukes for different times, different challenges that the scriptures invite us to at different times. Listen, God does not apologize for using pain in your life and in my life to train us into godliness. He doesn't apologize for it. He uses it. He used it in your life. Have you had pain? He's used it. He's used pain. And sometimes it's good pain. Sometimes it's hard pain. Sometimes it's productive pain. Sometimes we don't experience it as productive pain. God uses pain in our lives to train us and, and, and to correct us, the scripture says. And we shouldn't apologize for it because God doesn't apologize for it. So every parent, like this is a given, every parent has to prayerfully and humbly come to their own conclusions about what it means to deal with corporal punishment or physical discipline. I think there's many sincere Christians who really disagree on this topic. And again, this is not primary order stuff, right? This is not like, thus saith the Lord, it has to be exactly like this. And frankly, every kid's different. But I believe the Bible does teach that there's a clear sense that pain is used for discipline in tangible, specific ways in training a child as a sign of what it means to have a loving relationship with them. So regardless of where you land, I just, I'd invite you to take responsibility for what you're choosing. Study the scriptures. There's some great books. I'm going to reference a couple later. Shepherding Your Child's Heart has a particular chapter in there that deals with corporal punishment. That's, that's helpful, I think, in just kind of maybe shaping some of the way you've thought about it. But this is what I would say. Most of us either came from something that we don't want to replicate or came from something that we have to replicate, right? And I would invite you to say that's not the way that you decide what's a biblical, uh, like alive, connected to God way of disciplining, training your children, especially around this arena. And so I invite you to step into it with the Lord and to know why you're choosing what you're choosing according to the scriptures and to have peace with the Lord, peace with your spouse, that you would know what you're doing on purpose and why. That's what it means to be a disciple, to understand the will of the Lord for you. So let me give you a couple of just practical pieces. I'm going to give you some practical pieces on each one of these, but here's a little practice moment or practical time. Some key insights that Becky and I have received over the years um, about just the kind of, and of course, progressive, progressive nature of parenting. From a concept of discipling or disciplining your kids, um, one of the most important things that came, unfortunately, a few years later than I wished it had for me was the, was the concept of childish behavior versus willful disobedience. And, and that's a fundamental dynamic that I don't think I understood really well, that there are moments where your child is just being a child, that they're being silly at the table and they knock over the milk. They're not taking their milk and going like, I rebel against you. They're just being kids, right? Just childish behavior. 
That's not to be engaged. That's not to be disciplined in the way that willful disobedience is. And you know exactly what willful disobedience looks like, don't you? It's don't touch the Christmas tree, theoretically. I mean, we haven't had that in the last couple of days at Thanksgiving or anything, but it's don't touch the Christmas tree ornaments, right? And it's, don't tr- it's looking at you touching the ornament, like make me. Now that's pretty clear, right? That's willful disobedience. That's saying I have authority, right? So, so you handle that discipline fundamentally differently. It's not the same. You don't train up a child's heart when they're being silly and just being a kid in the same way that you do a child who is in the midst of trying to assert themselves as God. One of the other really tangibly helpful pieces for us was training our kids on how to work out conflict. I don't know about you all, but to say if you're married or you're in friendships, you may have had conflict once or twice. How do you learn that? Do you learn it by always being, having your parents intervene every time there's conflict and being the one? No, we don't. And so we had a pastor and his wife really helped us. They said, listen, they had six kids, so you know they had to deal. And, and they said, listen, one of the things we do is when our kids tattle, when they name call, when they, like, we have them sit at both, both ends of the kitchen table for 10 minutes, which when you're eight, which is about, you know, kind of mid-range, that's about the age you should be doing this, maybe somewhere, is like a thousand years. And, they had these, and you have this little list of things to read and to think about, which is what did I do that contributed to the problem? Is there anything I need to apologize for? Is there anything true I need to tell the other person? And they had 10 minutes to reflect with the Lord about this. And I tell you, and what's amazing is that if they talk anytime during it, the timer goes off again, starts over again. If they get up and start arguing about it, guess what? You get to sit back down and start over. What's amazing about that, and we had to do this for, I mean, it's probably several years, right? Um, is that we would hear them in their bedroom, especially after the, ten, the first 10 minute go, being like, oh, it's fine. You're still not listening to me. I'm just going to go tell. And they're like, no, 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 no. Don't go tell. We'll have to sit down again. Let's just figure this out together. And they learned to compromise. And they learned to, to have to love and to give up of themselves in order to. That changed our life, our parenting in so many ways. The other thing is, is just, um, especially as you enter into the teen, preteen, and, and teen context, is, is freedom with consequence. Some parents te- treat their, sick, their, um, their three-year-olds like teenagers, and some people teach to treat their teenagers like three-year-olds. And both of those will cause anger in your child. So when, uh, one of the things that we came to, because it's possible that I'm a bit of an A-type temperament, and I saw all, all things that my children did in disobedience as a direct affront to my authority... You know, that was my issues, but that's kind of how I struggled with that. And so one of the things that we instituted, particularly when kids would show up late at curfew, because they were doing it to me, right? They weren't just doing it, they were doing it to me. Um, Instead of trying to be like, hey, how could you possibly do this? Didn't we agree that 1130 was your curfew or 12 o'clock was your curfew? And so we just said, hey, listen, here's here's this agree on what the consequences are for your your behavior. You have this freedom and they're gonna have a natural consequence for it. So let's just have the discussion. Here's how it's gonna work. For every minute that you're home, 10 minutes past your, so 12 o'clock is your curfew. At 12.10, you're still good. At 12.11, you lose an hour of curfew for a week. 12, 12 minutes, you lose two hours. For every minute, you lose one hour of curfew for the week. Now, what's beautiful about that is that it takes all the angst out of the parenting moment. It was like clear consequences. They have this freedom, they're, they're growing up. And it's, now they always want to renegotiate. I mean, Haley and Nathan were, Nathan in particular, quite the master negotiator. Well, listen, I don't know that I totally agreed with that up front. And I know I'm like 22 minutes late, which means like 
I have no friends for a week because I have 12 hours of curfew. So yeah, you have to be home by noon. <laughs> and, uh, and it just, it was, it was simple and straightforward. Freedom with just natural consequences. There's no argument to be had here. I understand maybe you don't agree with this and that we're not going to renegotiate this, but it, it didn't create angst, frustration, and all this like drama in our home. It changed the way we parented. So, so discipline varies over time. It's a process. It's, it's progressive as God would give you freedom. But I want to just take us back to the fundamental of what we're doing when we're training our kids. And I think we hear it most clearly from the Lord in Deuteronomy chapter 6 as he, as he gives this vision of to, to the people of Israel about what it means to step into and be in full relationship with him. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to 7, God says, Hear, O Israel, through Moses, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the Shema, right? This is the center of the thing about the thing. This is all the way at the center of it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command to you, they shall be on your heart, right? So, so this is God being like, hey, I want you to know, like at the center of all things, this is the most important thing about you. And what's the first thing I want you to do with it? You shall, verse seven, teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk about them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. The first thing that we are to do with the reality, the central reality of all that God's invited us and instructed us in, in his word is to give it away to our kids. And we cannot outsource that. You can't outsource that to, 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 to folks that are training kids in, in RCC Kids. You can't outsource that to the sex ed teachers at school. You can't outsource that to the youth pastors. You can't outsource it. It has to come from you also. It has to come from you primarily. This is what the Lord invites us into. So we parent with discipline. And we parent by grace. Discipline are the two kind of avenues, the two tools, discipline and correction instruction, right? So I'm training up a child and we do so with, hey, this is right and this is wrong. This is wise and this is unwise. These are the ways in which the world works. There's a natural sense of consequence and, and there's discernment and wisdom. All those are at play. But we do the entirety of the whole thing by the auspices under the auspices of God's grace. God's grace for us, but God's grace for them. And the fact that all is going to be grace. We raise kids by the grace of God. Nathan was, um, our son was five years old. We had just moved to upstate New York from Omaha. I was working like 80 hours a week. It was a crazy job I had up there. Um, uh, it, things were not going well as a family. We were all struggling. And um, one evening I was at work and uh, Nathan got really upset with Becky and did not like something. Can't remember what it was necessarily. And he told her, I'm running away. And... Um, Becky had told her mom when she was a little girl that she was going to run away. And so she leaned back on her parenting and said, can I help you back? And she did. He actually said yes. And so she went and they took one of those buckets. He said he wanted to use one of those toy buckets to, to go on his journey. And uh, so he put some of his key toys in there. Um, no provisions, you know, no snacks, but um, 
some, some key toys and, um, and he walked out the door. Becky had told him, she said, listen, I, I, I don't want you to go. Um, I love you, but I'm not changing my mind on this. And so Nathan, who's an Enneagram 8, by the way, that might tell you a little bit, he just walks right out the door, closes the door. It's, uh, you know, November, December in upstate New York, and so it's like 5 p.m., it's dark. And he gets out onto the front porch. We have kind of a big main street that went by, right by the house we lived in at the time, and, and he just stops. And Becky's, you know, obviously not going to let him go run onto the street, but she's just looking through the slats of the, you know, the blinds as he stands there at the top of the stairs where the, where, as you step off the stairs, it goes dark. So it's all lit right here, but then it goes dark. And he stood there. He's probably out there like a minute, fuming mad, clearly, right? He couldn't do it. The entire time, Becky told me, we talked about the story a couple of days ago, and just the whole time she's like, oh, Lord, help. Like, help, please. Um, if I go out there, then, then he gains the power to say, aha, see, my, my ploy worked. I was able to leverage my authority over you, and you had to come get me because you couldn't live without me. And so she has to leave him out there. He didn't wear a jacket either, but, you know, you're five. Um, and sure enough, after about a minute, he comes in, pushes the door open, takes his bin of toys and throws them in the middle of the living room and stomps upstairs. Oh, he was mad. But he, he, didn't, he didn't try and leave again. He knew he would just get help. Um, but, but we parent by grace because any of us know most of the time we're not exactly sure what is the right thing to do. What is the most, like the perfect response? What's the ideal way in order to step in? Is this a moment of hard correction? Is this a moment of letting something be? It's, it's a lot of grace that we're needing. It's grace that the Lord is going to have to intervene on their behalf. So we pair it by grace, by reaching out, by like leaning on the Lord, by by asking for him to give us grace. And, and we parent by grace by being gospel reenactors in key moments in our kids' lives. We, we, we act out the gospel and we show it to them by living it in front of them. Uh, Nathan, again, uh, was about 14. Um, we'd uh, spent a lot of money on his braces, as you all can imagine. And no, braces are not cheap. And then we would move past braces into retainer life, right? Now, um, I think retainers like 1,500 bucks for those stupid retainers. He's 14. And so we had the very clear discussion, listen. And you know, we, did not, we were pretty tight on money at the time. We're like, listen, Nathan, like these are 1,500. There is nothing you own. All that you own isn't worth $1,500. So like, you gotta pay attention to these. Well, we'd gone to lunch at a Chick-fil-A as a family and he had a friend with him and he was being silly and 14, you know. So, and, and Nathan is not, was not the most attentive to detail at the time, um, as most 14 boys are not. And uh, he uh, cleared his tray, we get home and Nathan's like, I can't find my retainers. Well, sure enough, he was thorough in clearing his tray and with the tray went the retainers. And so a couple hours later, I'm in the dumpster at Chick-fil-A going 15. $1,500. Oh, and, and Nathan got to come with me, as you can imagine, right? Because this is a, you know, a learning moment. We're training. We're training. Um, but there was no way. Dozens and dozens of bags. There was, I mean, we just, we looked, we tore bags open, we, you know, but there was nothing to do. 
And um, we were driving back. And this is just one of those moments that like the Lord just hit me with this. And I just looked at him, I said, Nathan, he's like, you know, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And I said, Nathan, here's the thing. Like you cannot repay us for this. This is 10,000 talents to you. Like you don't have a job, good luck getting a job. You know, it's like, there's nothing you can do to repay us for this. And so we're gonna absorb all of it for you. I'm not going to make you pay. I'm not going to give you like 20 you know, years of chores to make up for it. Like you're, we're going to absorb it for you. And, and the reason I want you to know that we're absorbing this for you, and the reason why this matters is because this is exactly what God has done for me and for you. And I had this just moment of being able to say, I want to reenact the gospel in front of you in this tangible way where it's like we're in permanent marker world. Like he's paying attention because he's like, I'm about to die. And seriously, is what he's thinking. I'm going to die. And I was like, no, the sentence is on us. The payments, the payments on us. And so we just, we reenacted the gospel with him. And you know what's amazing? Like I had tears in my eyes because I'm actually experiencing what the reality of what God has done for me in it. As I offer it to him, his 14-year-old heart, who's still trying to figure out what authority looks like and what the Lord is really about. Parent by grace, by being gospel reenactors with our kids. And practically, some of what this means, and this is for some folks really natural and for others really not, is, is twofold. One is that we're, we become the kind of people, the kind of parents who confess and ask forgiveness from our children for when we wrong them or when we sin against them or when we sin in front of them. And we confess to them. We become regular confessors and forgivers. Most of the time, it feels like we're going to somehow lose power, right? You know, lose the authority when you say, hey, actually, I was wrong about this. I overreacted to this. I got angry and shouldn't have been angry at you. I was angry about something else over here, and it wasn't right that it came out on you. That happened to me all the time. I'm mad at your mom, and so I'm taking it out on you because I don't know how to be mad at her. I don't know if that rings with anybody, but that's just the reality, right? So it's like, no, this, sorry, this wasn't about you. Or, or you watched me be this way in front of someone else or, or to your mom and... And I just need to ask for your forgiveness. Confess that this is not the way in which I want to actually live my life in front of you and like, forgive me. We parent by grace, by confessing and forgiving. And we parent by grace by, by inviting our kids in stage appropriate, age appropriate ways into our struggles, into the things that are difficult about our life and the ways in which we're having to wrestle with God in it. Your life is difficult. And to, to, to tell children that everything is perfect and easy and hunky-dory is not always the best thing. Now, you don't freak out your kids, you know, when they're three and you're like, I've lost my job. You know, like, no, it's not, that's not what we're talking about. But in age-appropriate manners, what does it look like to invite your kids into the process of what it means to follow Jesus and to trust him? Saying, like, unless God comes through for me and for us, like, we're sunk. And so, like, I'm, I'm praying, but I'm scared. I'm sad or I'm mad. We invite our children into the struggles, the challenges, the fears, and even the failures, how we're honestly dealing with God with them. Remembering that it's not the last day, that God gives grace and we get to receive grace. Which means that as parents, we should become professionals at preaching the gospel to our own souls because you, you have, you are, and you will fail your children. 1999, Becky and I were going through a really tough time in our marriage, and we were meeting with this couple that was counseling us, and 
And uh, at one point we said, we're just, we're just so scared that we're like, that we're going to screw up our kids because of all the tension that's going on between Becky and I. We can see it's already having some effects on them. And, and we're, we're just afraid we're going to screw them up. And, and this, this woman, her name Sandy, she was amazing. She said, she goes, oh, she's so sweet. She goes, oh, almost like, oh, sweetie, honey, baby, you already have screwed up your kids. And I was like, whoa, whoa, we're going through a tough time right now. Like... And it's like, no, 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 but, but, and she just, with the most reassuring way, said, oh, you've, you've absolutely already failed and, 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 and screwed up your kids. Like you've, but here's the great news, that it is in those very avenues, those very contexts, those very cracks, if you will, in their hearts and souls where you have failed them, where you've not come through for them, that God will have a unique opportunity to be the one who mends it who shows himself to be the perfect father, the perfect parent, the one who actually does come through, the one who invites you towards himself because of the things that are broken. And so, yes, I'm not saying this is a free, you know, like carte blanche to just go and like screw up your kids. I'm not going to invite Jesus into their life. That's not what I'm saying. Of course not. We parent with wisdom as best we can, but you have and will fail your children. And if you don't have a grace mindset in you, then you're going to try and make up for it in every possible way. You won't be able to move towards them with the grace that needs to be extended by God to you. Parenting is a process, this long process. And we must commit as parents to have a long view of parenting because change is a process, it's not an event. You've probably had some moments where you're like, that moment was not good. And I just wanna say parenting is not a moment, it's not an event, it's a process, which means that moment can be redeemed. That's the beauty of the gospel. Anything can be redeemed. And the invitation is to say, if this is a process and God's invited me into this role to play, then I have the opportunity by his grace to be able to be a journey, a person of redemption in the life of my kids. So lastly, we, we, we parent in humility. It's kind of implied in some of what we've already talked about because the gospel only breeds and leads us to humility. But we, we do so in three particular ways I want to emphasize on. We parent in humility. First, that we learn. That we be the kind of people who, who learn how to parent Proverbs uh, 15.22 says, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Proverbs 20.18 says, plans are established by counsel, by wise guidance, wage war. And, you know, depending on where you are in your parenting journey, that's some of what it feels like. So, so it's going to take more than you. And some of you were raised by amazing parents, and you have this incredible foundation of really wise ways to move into and towards your kids. And some of you don't. You had bad examples or, or poor examples. But regardless, you can't be alone at it. We must be people who, who learn. And so we learn from resources. Books like uh, Give Them Grace, um, Shepherding Your Child's Heart, Grace-Based Parenting. Uh, Paul Tripp has a good book on, on t with teens called Age of Opportunity. And, and actually, his, one of his more recent books is maybe the best, which is uh, Parenting 14 Gospel Principles That Can Radically Change Your Family. So, so I don't know where you're at, but, but resources are going to be pivotal because you need help. So we learn from resources. We learn from other parents. Most of the really effective and meaningful things that Becky and I incorporated into our parenting came from someone else. Like we're just not that smart, we're not that clever, 
we're not that wise. We needed other people. So we parent with humility by, by being people who learn. And, and secondly, we parent with humility by being people who ask. That, we, that you'd open yourself up to feedback and perspectives that you can't see about your parenting or about your child. You can't see you clearly, and I love you, but you can't see your kids clearly. You see some things other people can't see, but you can't see it all. So ask trusted friends, people whose parenting you respect. Ask your parents. Ask those in your community group how they experience your parenting. Ask your babysitter. And here's what you want to ask. What are those one to two things that you see in my parenting that's, that's out of order? That's, that's either excessive or that's missing and absent. And what do you experience in my child that you, you feel needs attention or engagement? Ask your kids. Those of you who have kids that are old enough to be able to have even a brief dialogue, ask them, say, hey, listen, we're at home, on your way home today or if they're sitting next to you, now you kind of have to. Um, what do you think is the most important thing for me as your dad? What do you think is the most important for me as your mom? What, what do you think is important? What do you think are the most important things for me? And be surprised what your kids might say. They might talk about your work. They might talk about God. They may tell you things that you're like, I don't think you're telling me the truth. For real, what is the most important thing? And so we ask. It requires humility to ask. And then we receive, right? We ask and then we receive. We receive criticism. And sometimes it's the kind that you didn't ask for, which is always the hardest kind. But be curious. What do you, what do you mean by that? Like in, in what particular ways, what, what specific ways have you seen that? How do you sense that's affecting them? Be curious, not defensive. I think I've told the story not that long ago about my dad coming up and our kids were young and he'd been with us for about a week and we we're sitting out in the car and he just looked at me and said, Matt, you're too hard on your kids. You're just too hard on them. I was, I think I told you, ashamed. I felt shamed. I felt like a failure. It's my dad. Like I want to impress him. I don't think I'm killing it. You know, I'm doing great. And he's like, no, no, you're, you're kind of missing it here. And, he was right. It was hard to hear, but it was an invitation towards, and, and I think it had a, 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 a shaping event in my life. And by the way, that was him choosing a very particular moment, and he has not overplayed this over the years, to continue to parent me. Because parenting, as it turns out, never ends. It just shifts and changes. So we receive criticism. We become the kind of people who are willing to, to have what I'm calling two-way courage, where I ask you and then you tell me the truth, or, or you tell me the truth because you love me and you're for me and for my children. And, and when we stand up at a child dedication, it's not just because we're making you. But it's, hey, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm with your son or your daughter, and I'm, I've, I've heard this from them a couple of times, and I'm just curious about that, if there's anything that would be helpful to talk about. Or, hey, I, I've been in a community group for a year now, and like, 
the way I hear you talking to your kids when they interrupt us, like it seems like, like you're really angry. To be the kind of people who have the courage to step forward and say the thing even when it wasn't asked because that's what a beautiful community of faith looks like. Because we live out our calling in community. It's going to take us with each other. And as I said, it's going to take us asking other people, what do you see? What are we missing? Imagine if we were that kind of a community of parents and and disciplers who are opening ourselves up to one another to fight for the good of our kids. That's, That's a transformational community. That's actually other, really other. And some of what this means is just a a recognition of our inability, right? The truest thing about looking at parenting, honestly, is we find ourselves realizing that to the degree in which we're able to recognize what we're unable to do, that we're unable to do the essential thing that we actually long for more, most. And part of being a good parent is understanding that there's certain things you can't do, that God has tasked parents with many things to train, yes, to discipline, yes, to to teach, to train up, absolutely. But nowhere in the scriptures has the Father tasked you with the responsibility of creating heart change because you can't. Only the Holy Spirit can bring about the change in your son or in your daughter's heart that needs to happen. It's what he had to do with you. And so fundamentally, fundamentally parenting is a role we play on our knees with a submission to God that if he doesn't come through, then we're sunk. That all is grace. That we will participate with the whole heart training up our kids as best we can, but that it is his movement that will radically affect the only thing that ultimately matters, and that is their soul. So children can't be our saviors, and we can't be their saviors. Jesus has to be our savior, and he has to be their savior. And and to the degree that Jesus is truly your savior, the one who actually tells you who you are and your identity is not wrapped up in anything else but him, well, you won't make your kids the thing that saves you. You won't allow that to be the the, the identity central element of how you relate to them and in so doing, suffocate them or crush them. We are flawed people that need to be rescued who are raising flawed people who need to be rescued. And we need to be rescued over and over again, and they will need to be rescued over and over again by grace. Parenting's hard, and it's costly, and it's beautifully transformational. It changes who we are. So you need to, we must let Jesus be the center of our lives and become increasingly the center of our kids' lives. One of the ways in which uh, we do that is by, as I said, living out, displaying, or uh, articulating gospel understanding to our kids in key moments. And uh, one of those moments for us is when Haley was moving from pre-adolescence into adolescence, and it was true for Nathan too. Um, and so we, we took Haley out on her 13th birthday and uh, we gave her a ring. And um, 
This is the letter that we wrote to her and we read to her after when, when we were giving her this ring. We said, on a day not too far in the future, you will leave the walls of our home. From this day until that, you will step by step be moving towards a greater amount of freedom and independence. Though we believe that you remain under our authority during this season, we also understand that you will begin making decisions about your own life in large and in small ways. Now, a promise ring has traditionally been given as a means of reminding the one coming of age of their promise to obey and submit and, and more frequently to remain pure until marriage. Although we believe that these are all very important things, we, are, we do not desire for you to receive this ring as a token of some kind of slavery or guilt-making. Our most profound desire is for you is that you live and grow in the grace of the gospel of Jesus, which he gives you. We know that you will make mistakes. We know that you will not always want, nor will you be asking to do what we desire for you to do. We know that there will be days that will come when you will wish to be anywhere else but with us. That's part of growing up. What we desire for you to know and remember as you wear this ring is not your promise or vow to us, but instead our promise to you. So by grace, by the grace of God, with this ring, we, your mom and I, we promise to love you all the days of your life, regardless of what you choose to do or not to do, of how much or little you obey, how close you stay or how far you stray. Our love for you will remain unchangeable and unbreakable. We promise to protect you to the utmost of our ability against harm to your body and to your heart and against lies that damage his image displayed in you. We promise to always speak the truth to you, although it may be hard to hear at times, that by the faithfulness of our words, we may create a bond of trust between you and us. And we promise to look honestly before God at our own lives and actions, confessing and seeking forgiveness when we have wronged or failed you. All these things we promise as your parents because they are the mere reflection of the covenant promises God has with each of us, his children. Although you may someday become bride to another man and then likely maybe mother to children of your own, you will always be our daughter. But far surpassing this, from now until forever, you are daughter to the king, and that will never change. We love you, mom and dad. You see, to the degree in which Jesus is the center, to that degree do we find ourselves free from trying to make the kid, our kids the center. And then because we know the center as Christ who has fulfilled promise for us, we then get to invite them into something. That's what it means to be parents, to live out our role as parents to them. So as we come now to this meal, to this communion meal, in essence, in a way, this meal is like a rereading of the promise letter that God has written to each one of us. Because he has, through the scriptures, he's made promises to us and then he's fulfilled these promises in Christ Jesus. And so as we come to this table, for those who've placed their faith in Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection for us, for that grace that we've now received, it's as though these elements, God is in a sense saying to us, God promises to love you all the days of your life, regardless of what you choose to do or not to do, whether you obey or don't obey, how close you stay or how far you stray that his love for you will remain unchangeable and unbreakable.
That's the power of the gospel, and that's what we must give away to our kids. So whether you're a parent here or not yet a parent or no longer a parent, or this table is an invitation to be able to receive from the Lord, to put him as center, right? For him to become father and center so that we can invite our kids into that very same place. That's the beauty of our calling as parents to reenact the gospel with our kids all the days of the life that God gives them with us. So let's pray. Father, there is, um, there is so much to talk about when we're talking about parenting. It's fraught with so much, um, so much desire. Uh, it's fraught with our own flesh and weakness and uncertainty. And it's fraught with our own fears. And you know them all. And you sent the perfect wise son to come and not just experience a rod of punishment, but a rod of ultimate rejection for us. And so we now want to remember that and, and be invited by that reality into the center of ultimate reality, which is your love for us in Christ Jesus. And so we, we receive today, we come as all of us as sons and daughters of a good and perfect father. And we, we receive this as your gift to us. And we invite, we ask Lord that you would, you would press this beauty, this grace, this, this gospel of truth, that you, would, that you would train us with it and that we would find ourselves looking more and more like you. To the praise and glory of your name for the good of your people, that this community would be a fragrant aroma of life to life. We pray this in Christ, amen. If you belong to Jesus, um, this is your meal. And so we invite you to come and to receive the body and blood of Jesus for you.